This morning we're reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Susan. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, teach us, Holy Spirit. Um, reveal to us uh, what it is that you have for us as a body and you even have for us just as individuals uh, this morning. Prepare our hearts um, to come to this table uh, to meet with you and to be with you and to receive uh, your grace and your mercy and your love. Um, thank you. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Right. Oh, sorry. Yes, you can totally sit down at this point. If you're new here, we do not stand for the entire sermon. Um, now, we're, uh, we're in a just beginning a series. If you are new here, this is a great time to be here because uh, we're starting... Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we've only been in it for a week, and we've titled this series Meeting Jesus uh, because Luke authors his book uh, and says right out the gate uh, to this guy, Theophilus, uh, I'm really concerned. I've done like thorough homework. I've, I've interviewed and investigated all the right sources, and I'm going to give an orderly and an accurate account um, so that you can be certain Theophilus, uh, and so that we can be certain, church, this is who Jesus is. And so uh, uh, the question I kind of posed us last week through the text we looked at last week um, was, do I know the real Jesus? Um, like when Jesus went to his hometown, um, do I know the real Jesus or do I just know a Jesus that I've kind of heard some rumors about? Um, do I know a Jesus of my own imagination that I've kind of compiled and pieced together? Um, or do I know Jesus as he is revealed to us in Scripture? Uh, it made me think of when William Wallace rides up uh, to you know, that first battle, and someone says, there's William Wallace. And they said, that's not William Wallace. And he, he says, you know, he's taller than that, right? And, and William Wallace confronts him and says, yeah, I'm seven feet, right? And, and I have fireballs that would shoot from my eyes and lightning that will come from somewhere else. I won't finish the quote. But, you know, it's this picture of, you know, they had this idea of who William Wallace was. Do I know the real William Wallace? Do I know the real Jesus? 
So Luke is giving us, right out the gate, some first impressions, and first impressions matter. They have a significant impact on us understanding who he is. And Luke chapter 4 gives us the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Last week we looked at when he returned to Nazareth to his hometown, to the synagogue, and in the power, it says, and in the power of and under the leading of the Holy Spirit, so under the Spirit's strength and under the Spirit's direction, he goes to the synagogue and he asks for the scroll to be read, uh, and he reads from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61 and 58, um, the year of the Lord's favor. And he gets done reading this, this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he finishes reading that, and he does the mic drop moment, right? He, everybody's looking at him, and he, he sets down the scroll. He hands it back to the guy, and he says, uh, everything that I just read has been completely fulfilled, is completely fulfilled in me. I'm the one who's here to bring the good news to the poor. I'm the one who's here to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. I'm the one who's here to give sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to bring the year of the Lord's favor. And everyone, if you remember, if you were here, go back and listen to it if you weren't. Everyone was pumped, right? He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's our William Wallace. Everyone's pumped until Jesus challenges them on their understanding, on their application of what he's just claimed. How does what he's just claimed apply to them? He challenges them on that to the point that very quickly their support of Jesus, you know, he goes from being biggest fan, man, yeah, Jesus, to them being his biggest critic. Their support degrades into rage and walking Jesus to the, the town cliff to kill him. Because Jesus effectively shows them something in that moment, and that's this. You have a spiritual blindness that you don't yet see. You have a spiritual imprisonment and oppression that you're under that's greater than the oppression of Rome or whatever's going on outside of you. You have a deep need, and that deepest need isn't what you think it is. And he's saying, I've come to heal that. I've come to address your deepest brokenness. I've come to address your deepest need, your deepest blindness, your deepest oppressor, and it's not what you think. I've come here to free you from you. And to free you from what's most broken, and that's sin. I'm here to be the Savior that you need me to be, not necessarily the Savior that you want me to be. And even how I set you free, <laughs> it's probably going to be different than how you want me to. But that's what I've come to do. I've come to address your deepest need. I've come to set you free. And so if you're going to set someone free, right, even kids know this, uh, my kids play that game on the playground, Infection. We used to call it freeze tag, I think. <laughs> you just can't, can't stay the same, right? You got to change the name on us. To set someone free, you have to be free, right? 
It's how that game works. Free people are the ones who free people. And Jesus has to be free from sin in order to set us free from sin. And so with that in mind, what, what Sue's just read for us is actually right before what we studied last week. We're going to go backwards just a little bit so we can go forwards the whole rest of the way, okay? And we're going to look a little bit at this temptation that Jesus experienced at the hands of the devil himself. And why does that have to happen before he moves out on his mission to set the prisoner free? So three things. I know, there's always three. Sometimes I go four and occasionally two, right? There's three today. Identity theft, identity shift, and identity protection. That's really neat and clean, isn't it? Identity theft, you can, I call that the case of the ifs. I got a case of the ifs. Identity shift, which is the case of the thens. And then we'll get to the end, identity protection. And I promise we'll get there. Identity theft. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he's led, he leaves the Jordan, so he's just left his baptism. Remember the baptism where the dove descends from heaven in front of everybody? God the Father says, this is my son on whom I'm well pleased. It's an identifying moment. It's an identity moment. This is who he is. He leaves the Jordan and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days. And at the end of them, he was, he was hungry, or as the Greek says, hangry, because I would be hangry after 40 days, right? <clears throat> Why is the Lord being led? Why is Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness? Why is that here? Right at the beginning, right after the dove descends, right after his identity is established, right? This is who this guy is. He is my son. Everybody hear that? Immediately, he's led into a place of temptation where his identity is challenged. Why is that happening right here in Scripture? Well, when things are broken... Remember, we just said that the deepest thing that's broken with us, that's been broken since the beginning of time, is sin. When things are broken, you have to go back to the place where it all started, where it all began, if you're going to fix it. Some of you have been in counseling before. I've been in counseling before. Great counseling, a lot of great counseling does this, right? We're going to identify where in our childhood or where in our past or in our family systems or in our environment, something happened or something went wrong, right? A lot of people come in with a lot of feelings, a lot of problems. A lot of times what the problem is isn't, isn't something that's happening right now. It's something that happened a long, long time ago that's bearing fruit that's happening right now. we got to go back to that point and show it for how significant it truly was in your life. And then when we get to the root of that, when we pull that up by the root, we can actually start charting a new way forward from that point. Even great counseling gets this, right? Well, Jesus 
since Jesus was there at the beginning, and when I say that, I mean literally by, for, and through whom all things were made. He was at creation. He was at the fall, right? He understands where things were truly broken. Like one of the problems I think for us, for me, I'll use an I statement, I don't, when I'm dealing with things that are difficult, I don't go back far enough. <laughs> I can go back to the sin that's been done against me, right? Which is good. It's good to go back and identify where someone sinned against you, wounded you, whatever. But oftentimes I stop there. I don't go back to, to my sin and to what sin has done to me. We don't go back far enough. Well, Jesus understands if, if the problem is going to be addressed, if the problem is going to be fixed, we got to go back way far to the deepest problems. And so when we read this temptation account where the devil is tempting a man, the man Jesus now, directly, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, just like when he read Isaiah and the kind of the prophetic imagination of everybody in the synagogue was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That should ping for us. Because this has really only happened twice in this particular way in the, in the account of the Bible. First with Adam and Eve, and then again with Jesus. And in the Old Testament, if you go way back to Genesis 3, the Old Testament starts roughly with what? A story of catastrophic failure in the face of temptation from the devil, where sin and death entered into the world. And where are we at? In Luke, we're at the start of the New Testament. And what do we see? We see life-giving redemption coming through somebody who is overcoming temptation from the devil himself. Jesus, in facing Satan, as Adam did, he is starting with what broke creation. One commentator said it like this, Adam was cast from the garden into the wilderness because of his sin. Jesus was sent into the wilderness to bring us back into paradise through his perfect obedience where Adam's failed. So what we see is our Jesus who faces, because it says there that he was tempted for 40 days, he faces an even greater temptation with the devil himself because that's where it all went wrong. And remember, for him to set the captives free, he has to be free. Hebrews 4.15 talks about him as our high priest we have a high priest who is able to sympathize in our weakness because we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we were and yet did not sin. And so we can approach the throne of God's grace with confidence and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, in our time of temptation. Adam sinned, and everyone since that moment has been born into sin and has sinned and has fallen short, is what Scripture says. And Jesus, in his life and perfect obedience, undoes 
the life of Adam's failure and all of our failures as well. That's why Paul calls, literally refers to Jesus as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it like this. The first man, Adam, became a life, or sorry, a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was from the dust of the earth. The second man is from heaven. As we have the earthly man, so are those who are of earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Right before this in Luke, he ends Jesus' genealogy by saying this. He goes, Jesus is the son of Joseph, the son of this, the son of this. And he gets all the way back to the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Next temptation, right? What's he doing? He's saying Jesus has to come to be the true son of God, to do what Adam failed to do, to do what Israel failed to do in their 40 years in the wilderness when he rained down bread from heaven on them. Well, he's got to come to do what I, I failed to do. And Satan understands this. <laughs> He understands that the only way for Jesus to fail in that mission is to forget who he is. I'm going to challenge your identity. And if I can't get you to forget who you are, I'm going to at least get you to use who you are or misuse who you are for the wrong things. Use who you are only for yourself. He's attacking, he's trying to thieve away that identity from Jesus so he can undermine his mission, his mission which accomplishes what is shown forth at this table, which is this. I have come to be the mediator of a new covenant. I've come to be the great high priest, and I've come to be the sacrifice. I've come to be the person who makes a covenant with you, and I keep both sides of the covenant. I keep your part of it for you. I am fully God, and I am fully man because I have to do man's part for him. And if I forget who I am, if Satan gets Jesus to forget who he is, tempts him away from that, it all falls apart. If Satan gets Jesus to use his position and his power only for himself, it all falls apart. He's facing the very same identity theft that Adam did in the garden. Which leads to an invitation of an identity shift. Okay, second point. If you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. It says again, if you are the son of God, I will give you all this stuff. Um, it tempts him again a third time. If you are the son of God, then do this. If I can't get you to forget who you are, in some ways he's even affirming him, saying, okay, if this is really who you are, then I want you to prove it. If I can't get you to forget, the next best thing to get you to do is to misuse your identity for something that it's not intended for. It's in some ways the same as forgetting who you are. 
What Satan is inviting Jesus to do in this moment, and this is where it begins to really, I think, get particular, particularly important practically for us, is this. Um, I'm going to get you to try to prove who you are by what you do. If I don't know who I am, if I'm not resting strong and secure in that, then there's always an invitation, isn't there? There's always an invitation for me to try to do something to establish or prove that identity. Like, I know this. I I could read you an example from Madonna, but I'll just tell you from my own life. Every day there's an invitation, prove today that you're a good man. Prove today that you're a good father. Prove today that you're a good husband, a good friend, a good pastor, a good employee, a good citizen. Prove it. Every moment of every single day, Dave Burden is either living out of an identity that he has and out of a, out of a verdict from a father that he's already been given, or he's living trying to do something in order to get that. And there's a battle. There's a battle for Adam. There's a temptation for Jesus, and I would argue there's a temptation for us. Do I realize that my identity is under attack? That I'm in a real spiritual battle every single day. It's what Ephesians 6 says to us. When it talks about putting on the armor of God, he says, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Why do you think Paul would have to say that to us? Because he's, he's reminding us, our temptation is to think that the fight is all up here, right? But the real fight is underneath here. The real fight is a spiritual fight. It's not a physical fight. And Satan is always trying to bring it up here. Prove it. Just do it, Right? Prove it. Paul's trying to remind us, and Jesus is showing us here, the real battle is a battle that is a spiritual battle. And your identity is not only trying to be stolen, but if it can't be stolen, it's trying to be shifted onto something that it doesn't need to be on. Do I realize that my identity is under attack? That what God has said about me just like what he said about his son, that Satan is trying to get me to believe that that's not true or it's not good enough. That the fact that I'm chosen, that I'm holy, that I'm dearly loved, that I'm God's treasured possession, which is what First Peter says about you and me, that's not true or it's not enough. So I have to go in search of some other verdict, some other audience that's going to say yes, Right? Our identity is under attack and trying to get shifted so that what this table says about me and you because of Jesus' work is not enough. But the enemy, how he does this, I believe, with you and I, it's a little more subtle. And he does this, uh, I think, indirectly by appealing to us in a way that he appeals directly with Jesus. So let's just look for a second at these three temptations. The first one, you know, we said he's hangry, right? He says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, 
And then he led him up to a high place. And he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'm going to give you all their authority and splendor because it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus says, worship the Lord your God. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then lastly, he leads him to Jerusalem. And he's, he has him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, this is where Satan quotes scripture. We'll get to that. It is written. <laughs> he uses it as written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully and they will lift you up in their hands and you will not strike your foot against stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now we could spend an entire sermon peeling apart each one of these temptations. I'm not going to do that. So everybody take a deep breath. But here, here's what I, I kind of want to sum them up a little bit for our purposes for this morning. The first one is, is, here's how he indirectly works. If he can't get you to forget who you are, he's going to get you to use your identity, shift it into a place where I've got to prove something. And the first thing is this. I want you to use your powers in your position, because Jesus had the power to make bread, Right? Use your power and your positions for your own immediate needs. I want you to focus in your hunger on satisfying your own personal needs and desires, not following the Father's will for your life. He's in inviting him through that action to really betray his identity, right? To betray his relationship to the Father, but to betray his very mission. But it comes through feed yourself. Focus on feeding you, right? I can relate to that. I'm tempted about that all the time. To use my position, who I am, where I'm at, in order to focus on how do I provide for my own needs to meet my own hungers. Okay. Is that just, is that just kind of a struggle up here? Is that a spiritual battle? Am I being tempted? Second one. He leads them up on a high place and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to them, I'll give you all authority and splendor. What's he, what's he appealing to? Authority and splendor. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. You hear it? I can focus on providing for myself, but I also can focus on what he's being invited to here, which is this, I'm going to focus on pleasure, <laughs> splendor, glory and power for myself. And he's saying to him, go, go for a short-term power or an authority position right now, even though that would undo the eternal authority and splendor of the kingdom that you already have. <laughs> he's basically saying, settle for a lesser kingdom, and there's going to be no suffering, there's going to be no cross. You can have it all right now. But Jesus knows that if there's no cross, there's no forgiveness. If there's no cross, there's no atonement for sin. That if there's no cross, there's no robe of righteousness for you and for I. In this moment, he's saying no to his own pleasure. He's saying no to his own power. He's already got power. He's saying no to the short-term gain. He's saying no to the devil so he can say yes to the Father and so he can say yes to us. 
It was for the joy set before him. You hear what he's saying? The joy that's out there that I'm waiting on, that I'm, I'm dying for, I'm going to die for. It's the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So prove it by, prove it by providing for yourself. Use your power for yourself. Prove it. Just worship me and, and seek your own pleasure. Seek your own power. Seek your own glory. And then lastly, the identity shift. If he couldn't get Jesus to do that, he basically says this, make God prove himself to you. The devil led him to Jerusalem. He puts him on the highest point of the temple. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And he quotes Psalm 91. He actually takes a part of the Bible and uses that against Jesus in this moment to try to get him to do what he wants him to do. I mean, this is like the epitome of in Romans 7, where it says, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment. This is how sneaky and deceptive Satan is. Sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment and deceives me, and through the commandment puts me to death. He takes the very word of God and twists the word of God in order to put me to death. Satan quotes Psalm 91 and says, make God prove it to you who he is. Because Psalm 91 talks about God will defend against and fight for the faithful. And Jesus has just proved in these first two turndowns, hey man, I'm, I'm not going with you here. So Jesus has proved he is faithful. So Satan basically says, great, you're faithful. Now do something to prove that he's faithful. But Jesus knew that the Father was true to his word, and the plan was this. The plan wasn't for him to throw himself down from the highest point of the temple to be revealed as God's son, but the plan was later to be led to Jerusalem, to be hoisted up on a cross, to show the heart of the Father for his kids. Remember the the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? He gave his son, not took something, but gave something. And he gave us what we needed. He gave us his righteousness for our sin. He gave us his faithfulness for our unfaithfulness, his obedience for our disobedience, his self-forgetful love for our self-centered love. His identity was under attack. Identity theft. His identity <laughs> then was invited to be shifted, which I think we face. Um, but Jesus would not have his identity stolen, and he wouldn't have it shifted. Uh, we see here his face was literally, like Scripture says, set like flint. <laughs> um, and I, I just want to give us a real practical thing before we come to the table of what we see Jesus do in defending against the enemy. And that's identity protection. How did Jesus fend off Satan? Like when he teaches the disciples to pray, he says in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How was Jesus delivered from the evil that he was being invited to participate with? 
Because I think he's showing us in this moment something really practical, what it looks like for us as true sons and daughters to actually defend against the enemy's attacks. And remember, we're in a battle. You can live <laughs> obtuse to that, but it's, it's to your own demise. And here's this. Jesus defends his identity with God's words. It is written, it is written, it is written. Now that may seem really simple and like, well, man, what a deep revelation, Dave. But it's significant because if Jesus <laughs> needs the word to stave off the enemy's attacks, how much more do I? Like, if I, the visual I have here is like, you ever seen a crash test car that's kind of zipping down, you know, the runway, and it's all whole and everything, and then all of a sudden it hits that wall? That's what's happening here, is Satan has got his foot on the pedal, and he's, and Jesus goes, it is written, boom. And that car is mangled. And Satan backs it up and lines up a new one. It is written. Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Ephesians 6 says that the, the Spirit of God has a sword in His hand, and that the sword is the Word. That the battle that you're in, if you don't have the Word... You don't have a sword. You don't have a wall. That temptation is going to run over you. And what Jesus is showing us in this moment is that God's word is a deliverer. That it's the only thing that you and I know, as much as we believe we know the truth, and that all the things that we, it's the only thing we know that is true and that is unchanging. My feelings, my thoughts, my thoughts about my thoughts and my feelings, those change all the time, don't they? But the Word of God is unchanging. Man, do we need something unchanging in an unstable world. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so how do we experience identity protection when our identity is trying to be stolen or shifted? How? The only place I have protection is in him and in his word. And for some of us, I just got to say it like this, some of us, we're like the people who have the ADT sign out front of our house, but we don't actually have an ADT account. <laughs> you got a Bible that sits in your house. And if you don't have a relationship with it, it's like having that sign. But Satan ain't a dumb criminal. He doesn't look at the sign and go, oh, wow, they have a Bible. They go to church. He knows how to get at you. <laughs> And do you have a wall? Do you have something solid? Do you just have the sign in your yard? Because he came and he died and he rose again to give you a new spirit and a new heart. And he gave you the word so that you'd be equipped to actually face these temptations. 
and be delivered in them. He's done this so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What do you go to a throne for? You know who sits on a throne? A judge. You know what a judge gives? A sentence, a verdict. And what's the verdict? The same verdict when the dove descended on his son. This is my son. This is my daughter. I am well pleased. There is no more condemnation for you. You don't have to go out and prove it. Would you live in that identity? When we come to this table, that's what we come to do. This is a word. This is his word in sacrament, right? He said, I'm going to give you this meal, and I want you to do this often in remembrance of me so that you remember that this is my body, which is for you. It says after the same, you know, the same way after in the supper, he took the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I've made a covenant with you. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because you eat this bread and you drink this cup. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're coming to eat from the bread from the mouth of God here. You proclaim the Lord's death. Why did he die for you? Until he comes. Who's he coming for? You. So we come to this meal because we realize Jesus didn't bail on his identity He didn't misuse his identity. He didn't shift it for his own personal gain or for his own personal power. He says, you can't afford to forget who I am because if you are, you're going to forget who you are, which is mine. You are the apple of my eye. You are my beloved, and you have to be reminded. You have to feed on that word to be strengthened so that you can live in the identity that I've already given you that's firm and established and can't change, and so that you don't go out there later this week and try to shift it onto something too small. So if you're in Christ, run to this table. Eat. Feed on the truth. Um, Bring all the things that Satan is tempting you with, (laughs) that he's inviting you, whether it's to provide for yourself or for your own pleasure, your own power, whatever it is, the accusations that he's leveling against you. He's a stealer, a killer, and a destroyer. Bring all of that and come to the judge and say, speak a better word over that. And if you're in Christ, he says, come on, approach the throne of grace. I have a verdict for you. If you're not in Christ, then I would just say to you this morning, would you run to him? Would you run to him by faith and then run to the meal that says, I have faith in him? And for those of us who are in Christ, but maybe we've got some things to examine because he says, examine your heart. Where are you trying to prove and get the verdict that you already have? Where are you trying to get an identity that you've already got? Where are you trying to prove it? And would you come and repent of that and just lay it down? Lord, I'm trying to get my, my, my identity through my job or I'm trying to get my whatever. I lay that at your feet and I receive what you say about me. All right, well, I'm going to pray for us here. When you're ready, come down the middle aisles um, and kneel. Put out your hands and folks would be happy uh, to serve you when you're ready.
Um, if you need prayer, cross your arms. Somebody up here would be very happy to step in and pray for you. Uh, if you're gluten-free, that's here on the far side. Um, if you're bringing your children up with you and they're not partaking of the sacrament, will you just help the servers know um, that they're not doing that? But please feel free to bring them up with you because um, it's a great experience for them to see uh, what the Lord means to you uh, and to lean into that for their own journey. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you that where Adam failed, you didn't. Thank you that uh, you have been tempted in every way that we uh, are, will be, and anyone ever was, and yet you were without sin. And so as a result, we can approach this throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Man, we are needy, and we do have an adversary, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you minister to their hearts as they come to the table. Uh, Fight for them. Uh, defend them, uh, deliver them, uh, affirm uh, your great love for them and, and their secure identity in you. And may we be a community that runs in the strength of that, um, facing the temptations that we know we will face in your name. Amen.